welcome to Resilience Agenda Radio, the mental fitness podcast. My name is Hadley Fisher. Here at Resilience Agenda, we're bringing you the latest on how to develop, maintain, and improve your mental fitness. With me today, we have Jocelyn Brewer, psychologist, digital well-being expert, and the founder of the idea of digital nutrition. Jocelyn, thanks for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. First of all, how are you going with all this COVID business? I'm uh, quite happy and content and enjoying it. I'm sitting in my home office, which I've had for several years, looking at my backyard and my chickens pecking around and actually bathing in some dirt at the moment. So I quite like it. I went to the shops the other day and I got quite anxious and I think we're going to have some you know, re-entry anxiety as people um, go back to whatever this new normal might look like. For the benefit of the people listening, tell us a bit about you, tell Mm -hmm. us about your background and how you got inspired to talk about this idea of digital nutrition, which we'll get to later, Mm -hmm. and what exactly it is you do and how you go about sharing your message. I was somebody who wanted to be a vet and I didn't get the marks that I needed. Well, actually, it's not that I didn't even get the marks, it's that I gave up when I heard how high the marks were for vet science. I actually went, I'm not that smart, I'm not doing that. So I floundered around for a long time and I actually became a bit of a geographer and a kind of multidisciplinary person, really interested in humans and their environment and this world that we live in. And that took me into teaching. So I taught geography at high school. Um, I was also into the arts. So I did some um, independent theatre production. I did some social media strategy. And then I retrained as a school counsellor. And that's really where I got into, I guess, cyber psychology and looking at the interaction of people and and technology. Um, Completely by accident, I guess, I had to do a research project and my principal said, you should look at kids and technology and internet gaming disorder and addiction. And I went, oh, okay. So 12 years later, um, yeah, here I am in the field of cyber psychology. I I guess I work as a psychologist. I have a, a private practice. I see everyday people for everyday kind of things as well as yeah having digital nutrition as a little business where I do a lot of speaking and consulting and just generally helping people um, not unplug but untangle themselves from technology and untangle the the way that our psychology is wrapped up in in what we do in the online space. Can you tell us what being tangled up in technology looks like because yeah a lot of people have heard that technology is bad it's bad for kids, it's bad for work-life balance, and there's a lot of assumptions to unpack there. And you would think most people make the trade-off, well, hang on, technology's got a lot of benefits. It might have one or two things that are less than ideal, but on balance, it's great. So what what does being tangled look like? Look, it means different things for different people because we have different expectations, I guess, of our productivity or how we get to our goals or what we do with our lives. So for many of us, I feel like it's basically um, that we've been very excited by the shiny new thing and then suddenly we've worked out that the shiny new thing and what we've given up to go into those spaces, time, privacy, all those kind of things, Suddenly we realise that there's value to that and that that value has has shifted and changed. So it can look like sometimes very, very, very much like pure addiction and there's that big narrative around whether or not technology is is actually addictive and toxic even that you need to go on a digital detox from. So, yes, there are some really pointy and problems with it, 
But for many of us, it's just kind of crept into our lives and suddenly, yeah, we're in a pandemic where all we can do is look at our phones and and, and start re, rethinking, I guess, the fact that it really is about connection and socialisation. You know, we've put the social back into social media in the last little while. So, so tangled in technology looks different for different people. You made a point there about how it's just sort of crept into our lives and, you know, some people are really conscious of planning out their lives in terms of their career or their health or what they what they do or how they spend spend their time other people just sort of take life as it comes and at resilience agenda one of our big ideas is that if you're going to focus on your mental health and your mental well-being and your mental fitness that you've got to create time for it, it doesn't just happen yep. automatically mm-hmm. can you just expand a bit more on that idea of what's crept into our lives and we haven't really planned it kind of like how you can you know have overeating or stress or something else overtake your life talk talk us through that yeah I, I think it happens on a couple of levels one of which is that there is a functional utility placed on technology so if you suddenly are working in teams and that team decides to use some sort of collaborative tool and I won't name the obvious one but it's a collaborative tool where it's going to ping and ding and you know you're going to track projects and you're going to have conversations that take you away from doing what Cal Newport would talk about being deep work um so and then there's like as a parent you suddenly are going to um check your phone to work out what the weather's like, to how to dress your kid. You're going to keep up with the WhatsApp group of all the, you know, parents in the school community about who's bringing the oranges to the soccer game or whatever. And so for many of us, yeah, there's utility in it, but that utility creeps into then I'm going to check that WhatsApp message and then I'm going to check my Instagram and then I'm going to reply to all of these other things and ops, I haven't got time for the other stuff that I actually would prefer to be doing. So I think especially for adults, it is wrapped up in the the idea of it being a tool and having lots of utility, whereas for young people it really is much more about leisure, increasingly about learning and, and, you know, in screen time, when we look at the screen time limits, it doesn't even include screen like time in front of a screen for learning purposes. It's actually purely just the fun stuff that they're counting the the digital calories around. So... um, you know, I, th- I think that technology has been this amazing tool, but we haven't really stopped and considered where we want it to start and stop in our life when it is time to put, you know, the device away or even switch off the smart TV that's just going to keep feeding you shows and suggesting you things to, to kind of um, steal your attention. So, yeah. So we're going to talk about technology in a really nuanced kind of way. So if anyone thinks this is going to be a 45-minute discussion about how bad technology is, that's not going to be the case. But I guess it's worth summarising the arguments that technology can be overwhelming. And you've already touched on one there, which is the idea of deep work and the idea that um, by checking our phones throughout the day or having an ill-disciplined approach to email or messaging, we don't actually get important stuff done. Can you give us a bit of a summary of the three or four main critiques mainly for adults here because we do have to be um conscious of the distinction between adults and and and, and kids here for adults if i haven't thought about this before why should i be open to the idea of being mindful with my technology use oh okay well generally it would come down to time so i i generally start with people in terms of time because that's a 
finite resource and an unrenewable resource. So we can't go back and time travel just yet to get back the, the lost time or years. So when, when we're doing more of something, and this is the displacement hypothesis, which to some degree has been discredited, but um, generally speaking, if we're doing more of one thing, we're doing less of something else. So unless we're consciously choosing to do more of that thing that is really aligned to the stuff we want to do and, and our goals and our, our intentions, then um, we might be, I don't want to say wasting time, but losing opportunities that we then might have some regret around. Um, there's not, you know, people on their deathbeds report, oh, I really wish I spent more time with my friends and family, not I really wish I got better at doing TikTok videos and became famous for that. So, um, which, you know, can be argued is an amazing way to connect at the moment. And we see, you know, dads getting into TikTok and all of these really exciting, interesting ways of using TikTok. It's one of my favorite things. So time, time is one of those, I guess, issues, a really big issue that adults kind of face around how they're, how they're spending that time, literally spending their time and they're paying attention what they're paying attention to and when we think about you know uh, a lot of the social media platforms that we might use are free we pay with our attention we pay with our keystrokes and we pay with our time and um, that I guess is another thing to to kind of keep in mind the cost to us by what we hand over when we use those platforms again these are things when I joined Facebook 13 years ago I didn't ask any of these questions. It was only probably the Cambridge Analytica point where we suddenly went, oh, oh no, hold on. You, I was getting sucked into things when I was doing those silly quizzes or I was giving away all of this information. And this is digital literacy. This is media literacy and understanding the, the machine behind what we're having fun playing around with, I guess. So I, I feel like, yeah, there's a big, a, a big shift around those kind of questions that we ask there. Because of the notification aspects, and I think, you know, notifications and the, the, some of the designs that are within the platforms and the particular devices, even though, yes, you can take control of those, if you haven't taken control of those, then it is distracting and literally taking you out of opportunities to, like you were saying, like we need to carve out time to take care of our mental health. And that shows up in many different ways. It's not like, oh, okay, once a month I'm going to go and talk to a psychologist. But we need to carve out time to do the things that we know create the formula or the ecosystem for our, our, our you know, mental wealth. Um, similarly, we need to carve out time to do the things that really matter um, and, and to be able to wrangle that technology and know how to use it to our advantage. So knowing how to batch notifications, knowing how to... Um, work out what, what the utility and what the best parts are that serve you and, and sit well in your life, I guess. The COVID app that Australia has is a really interesting one for that because the thing about it is you need to take it everywhere with you and have your notifications on so they can let you know if, um, you know, you've been in contact with someone with COVID. Now, normally what I would say about phones and apps and stuff is turn off your notifications, do not allow them to interrupt your attention and don't take your phone absolutely everywhere. Go places and just be, like live like it's 1997. So, you know, in the context of where we're at, here's, it, here's the, the, the system kind of un, unraveling what I would normally say because that's that's the problem we're trying to overcome so it's it's very contextual I guess how we how we do do this wrangling that's a really good point about the COVID app there was an article a couple of years ago by Jean Quengi 
in the Atlantic. And for those of you who haven't read it, it was called Have Smartphones Growing Regeneration? The basic premise was that social media and technology is being overused by kids, especially teenagers, and it was the harbinger of a mental health crisis that we're going to see in the next 10 or 20 years. Now, that, was, that went viral, funnily enough, ironically, and created some polarised reactions, shall we say. People agreeing with it and disagreeing with it. What did you think of it? And with the benefit of time, how would you say that argument has unfolded? How, how nerdy and deep do you want to go and how much statistics and analysis do you really want? Well, I'm familiar with the studies, um, but I'm sure our listeners aren't too interested with the uh, sample sizes yeah, and correlational yeah. direction of um, arguments. But, yeah, let's just... Uh, so. So it's important to, I guess, step away sometimes from the research and say, what do we, what do I as a psychologist and a school counsellor and, you know, a human being want for everyone, every human, especially young people, I want them to um, have the skills to support their own mental health. I want them to be able, I, I, I want to solve this problem around screens and, and um, how we use them effectively. That's why I do what I do. When we look particularly at, at, um, this piece of research and the book iGen blah 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 the big long title that that really was the is the book that the, the article is a precursor to I think there are some problems with the way that it's using first of all the correlation and the effect size of that correlation was incredibly small if we look at the same relationship between mental health and listening to music it had a higher um, correlation and I don't know about you, but I grew up listening to all sorts of music, mainly Tori Amos, let's face it. Um, and, you know, like we could we could look at that and go, well, where's the book about how music is going to destroy a generation? And I'm sure there was conversations about how rap was going to, you know, destroy people and, and all of those sorts of things. So there, I guess, is two very um, clear camps around this. Um, and even in the last week, there has been ongoing debate around the way that statistics are being used to, um, and Jean Twenge in, in the last week has kind of said, oh, look, using technology is like heroin. And there's a graph on Twitter that you can go and follow and, and read stuff. And and that, I think, is incredibly problematic because of the narrative, I guess, around uh, around drugs and the, the way we polemicise people who are long-term drug users um, who generally, again, to use a correlation, have, have adverse childhood events and significant trauma that, that turns them in, you know, turns them towards those, those choices. So this is an incredibly complex area and, again, like it really does require people to understand more than just, you know, correlation is not causation and you shouldn't cherry-pick data but really, really complex um, analyses that have been done, again, by, um, I guess, the other camp, um, Andy Shabulski and Amy Auburn and a crew of others um, over in Oxford. Um, so, you know, like I, I get kind of funny, I guess, about these camps because it can get really not nasty, but it's really um, very different teams and I really would like to see us come together more on having much more practical, realistic solutions around what we do because saying limit your screen time to two hours a day and quite frankly in 2020 is an absolutely bullshit response and I would laugh at anybody who does that, you know, like who, 
who puts that out there. I think we need to do better at that. And I haven't seen, I guess, from Jean Twang, um, her extrapolate better into how that happens. The ban stuff doesn't, you know, forget it. Like you yeah. miss the boat. You made it. You made a, um, a point there about we need to be realistic. And I think what's really, and this is going to lead us into your big idea. You made a point about being realistic, and you've got to accept big changes in the world. The internet is the printing press of our day. It's you know, people said the same thing about books 400 years ago. Books were going to corrupt the mind and certain people were going to lose influence, etc. And we have to find, you know, you, you don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. You find what is practical and what is good and you try and mitigate what isn't as helpful. And a good analogy there is the idea of nutrition. Some people say drinking alcohol is always bad. Eating chocolate is always bad. You know, and then you've got people who are a bit more nuanced who say having too much sugar is bad, having too much fat is bad, having too much alcohol is bad. And then you've got other people who don't really think about it and eat whatever they want. And then you've got people who just indulge in the things that are really, really unhealthful. Now, you've come up with this idea of digital nutrition. Now, before we actually go into the three M's of digital nutrition, talk us through the metaphor at a really high level. How is how how does the metaphor relate, and why is nutrition the right term, um, and how does it link back to what we understand about food? And you know, we all know that we should eat healthier, even though we don't, but at least we have that base in mind. Yeah. So the the metaphor is basically using the analogy with food to understand how what we consume through our senses in the online space impacts how we think and how we feel. Yeah. And, and, you know, other behaviours generally. So given that we've spent a lot of the last kind of couple of decades working on expressing to people and helping, um, you know, from a public health perspective, people understand what healthy eating looks like, um, I'm really just buddying off this um, analogy to go, okay, well, everything you kind of understand about um, food, you can apply to how it might impact you from a technological perspective. So what we see when we talk about a lot about screen time is really a focus on digital calorie counting, like calories in rather than considering what's the nutritional content of what you consumed. Because alcohol, some people might say alcohol is bad. I would say alcohol is really bad if you're two years old. You know, the context of that really needs to be taken into consideration. So when we say, okay, two hours is your digital calories for the day, if those two hours is an eight-year-old playing a very violent video game nonstop with no supervision and potentially being, you know, bullied, predated, all of that sort of stuff, then we might go, yeah, that's, that's not great. Whereas what we need to do is zoom in and look at, well, what are some of the, what I call virtual vitamins? What is the, is there any vitamin C for creativity, vitamin E for empathy? And really looking at what people are doing and the micro interactions within activities. So when I talk to parents, they say, you know, what's, so what's the problem with your kid online? What are they doing? Oh, they're playing X video game, usually starts with F or M, um, you know, big name, very popular game. And when they're not doing that, they're watching YouTube. Well, what are they watching on YouTube? There is a lot of stuff on YouTube. Understanding why they like those games, what they're doing in those games, what those games require of you, 
and then why you then just want to watch people playing that game <laughs> when you're not actually playing it yourself is like understanding when I eat an apple, what am I getting out of it versus when I eat a burger? Neither are good or bad. I mean, on the surface, they might seem good or bad, but it's only when you look at the entire context of that consumption that it you, you get more information. So if the only thing your child eats is apples and they don't eat anything else, that's a problem. If they can enjoy a burger in, you know, the rest of the week, once a week and, you know, everything else is healthier, um, then, you know, is that a problem? So a lot of the, the narrative, I guess, has been stuck on time rather than us as parents and adults who didn't grow up with this stuff going, tell me why that's so fun that you would want to do it for 18 hours straight and being curious with that. I think a lot of the time as adults we kind of go, oh, just go over there and do your youth online-y thing that we don't get because generationally that's just like how things roll, right? So our job, I think, as parents is to get really curious and get in amongst um, understanding what, why they would prefer that game or just scroll that platform rather than talking to grandma. Before we go into the 3Ms, can you speculate on why it is that kids love playing these games and not talking to grandma? Or is it just because they haven't seen the alternative? Or is it because there's some psychological needs that are being met that aren't otherwise being met by our environment or, or, or school or parenting or whatever? Mm. I guess what I'd say is I think that the adults haven't seen the alternative, which is to actually try games and to get involved in games. And when I set homework for parents to say, I want you to go home and play a game, they usually come back, apart from they say, oh, I don't have time, blah, blah. Um, when they do that, they go, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. I got up to level whatever. So I actually don't think it's that kids don't know how to talk to grandma. Of course they do. And and sometimes they do. Like it's not that they're kind of completely that um, addicted or in, engaged or obsessed or whatever that they don't do that. It's just that absolutely the psychological needs that some games are designed to help meet um, are very, very strong. Even where the game might get boring and old, for instance, in something like Fortnite, lots of kids, you know, are bored with the game itself. It's their um, virtual playground or skate park where everyone's just hanging out and, and meeting up. So it, it actually becomes more a place to have a conversation. It's it's basically their Zoom meeting um, rather than it's about the game and the game is designed to addict them. Um and, you know, I won't, I won't go on for hours about game design, but a lot of it is that they, they um, when you play a game, you're playing at the level where you're just challenged enough to have to work hard to kind of have that epic win and just be on the verge of getting to the next level. And we want to get to that next level. We want to push ourselves just that little bit more. No kid plays a game, and I'd say no human plays a game and says, well, I just think I'll play this game at like 80% capacity. You have 100% trying every single time. What I'd love is if we could engineer classrooms so that we set the, the bar for trying to do maths and get good at maths in the same way with the same kind of design of things so that kids kept wanting to try rather than feeling overwhelmed and giving up or bored and giving up and all of those sorts of things. So your idea is that we can ask ourselves three questions and the three questions or what you call the three M's of digital nutrition is this or is this activity mindful? Is it moderate? 
and is it meaningful? And it talks, it comes into the context of what we've spoken about there. None of those questions are about is it enough time or is it too much time? It's about what you're actually doing with the time you've allotted. Can you explain why those three and just elaborate a bit on what each of them means? Sure. So mindful, I guess, is is not, you know, the traditional mindfulness. It's really about being present. It's really about putting focus on the choice that you're making for how to spend your time. Because, yeah, time still is a factor. So are you mindful of what you're doing and therefore what you're giving up when you're doing that? Um, are you really present to the impact that you're going to have and the things that you do, not just on yourself, but if you spend time in chat rooms or on, you know, in communities online, some of the things you say are going to have impacts on other people, um, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, like we see lots and lots of positive sharing um, in those spaces. Um, mindful, uh, so that's mindful. Meaningful is really, is, is this aligned to your goals and purpose? Does this have some sort of relevance to the stuff that you really care about? And that's not like, oh, everything we do has to be aligned to our goals and all of that. But like, is it is it the kind of content, given all the content out there, is it the kind of content that sort of is the, in the ballpark of what is important and interesting to you? And then finally, moderate. Moderate is about, okay, not just moderating the amount of time, but moderating how you act in those online spaces. Because again, it's, um, I guess when we're online, we're looking at each other because we're Zooming, but Sometimes we forget if you're, you know, late at night, you know, replying or commenting or, you know, doing whatever on in online spaces, sometimes we forget that there's a human on the other side because we don't have that eye contact and we don't speak online as if we were actually present to another human being. So, again, that mindful of that there's another human there. Um, so moderating our ability to interact or how we interact because of the way that it's called the digital disinhibition effect, the fact that we're not present to that other person means our communication shifts around. We tend to get a little bit more outragey. We tend to, yeah, just communicate in different ways. So then my three M. The three M's. And can you tell us how the three M's have shown up in the world, who's using them, you know, what kind of impact they have had? Um, I have no idea to tell you the truth. I mean, I apply these to everything that I do. Um, it's not, I guess, just about screens. It happens to be handy for screens because that's a pain point a lot of people are experiencing but it um, might be around you know whether I'm reading whether I'm bothering to exercise how I'm thinking about other stuff how I approach writing my thesis um, so you can it's just a kind of lens and yeah as you say questions to ask yourself around is my behavior on track um, with what I what I want to be doing and and I guess um, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about Nir Isle's book, um, Indistractable, and the model that he gives there around building, you know, actions can either build distraction or build traction. And that building traction to the stuff that matters, and I, I talk generally like stuff, stuff that matters, you know, it's not about, oh, you know, your goals or your attention or anything that lofty. It's just like, you know, when stuff, when um, you care about stuff and tuning into that. So, um, yeah, it's just a way to kind of keep that traction happening and keeping taking those little steps towards the things that you really care about. In a time like this, we're recording this in early May, still coming out of lockdown. A lot of people, electronic usage or my internet usage is pretty mindful, pretty moderate and pretty meaningful. But even so, I've found that the days are drifting 
in the one a bit. I don't typically use the term work-life balance. I don't like it. I prefer work-life integration because you know if your if your work has some degree of purpose or meaning that you've given it, uh, it doesn't just fit on a nine to five schedule. How can people apply these ideas of moderation, mindfulness, and meaningfulness to their work life while at home? And how can they create some degree of distance between the different uses of technology? So, you know, one thing I've noticed is that I use my computer for work and for streaming and for personal emails and for researching. And, you know, I'm always sort of in that same headspace and I'm trying to figure out habits and solutions to get around that. I don't really want to have a an iPad for browsing newspapers and a you know, I don't like reading anything more than, you know, three sentences on my phone because so give us give us some really practical strategies and ideas for what we can do. And again, I this is a diet kind of thing is or you know there's no prescription specifically for some of these things because it is tailored to what do you do what are your predilections when you get stressed are you likely to go to the fridge or start scrolling you know insert your favorite social media platform are you likely to grab for the gaming console and not move for six I was going to say six months hopefully it's less than six months you know six hours so Look, to, to carve out, I guess, a difference between work and life and not that you're trying to balance it, I agree balance is kind of another thing I call bullshit on, that it's really about saying what do I need to get done and how can I use this tool purposefully and, and almost adapt the tool to fit its purpose. Because I think sometimes, especially we see this with Zoom fatigue, how everyone's just like, oh, God, if I have to do another Zoom meeting and look at the Brady Bunch and keep, you know, keep up with all of that information, that we just keep doing it rather than somebody saying, you know what, is this actually an impo- important enough to have a meeting? Could this be a Slack channel um, conversation? Could this actually be that we all need to, you know, come up with our own first draft or two sentences and pile on in and and collaborate in different ways. So it's actually keeping on questioning the role of technology and whether or not that's actually the best way to do it. And sometimes the question that I throw back to people is to say, what would you have done in 1996 or 1997? How did we solve these problems then? Because sometimes I feel like people are looking to the next bright, shiny Apple platform or thing instead of using their brains the most complex piece of technology on the planet still to solve some of those problems in a much kind of simpler can meaningfully connected kind of way even to the point I say just pick up the phone um in Australia our internet isn't so great so it's that's much more reliable than trying to get your wi-fi to work sometimes I noticed on your email signature and I've seen a couple of people with this recently you write I have a calm, this is a calm inbox. That's right, we have a calm inbox. And I've seen this on a couple of people, and I find this myself. So I live in Europe, I communicate a lot with Australia, and I probably should set up one of those things where you can delay all your, your messages until 6am. But I find myself spend, sending emails throughout the night, throughout my day, but it's Australian nighttime, and people get them at unusual hours. Now, um, a couple of my staff in Australia realise that I'm up sending my emails and they reply when it suits them. They just know how that works. But a classic example is, say, the boss who is finishing off some emails 
at 11 o'clock at night and they are simply clearing their inbox. And part of clearing your inbox is replying to a few things or suggesting something. And then maybe you're not mindfully or not moderately using your phone and at 11 o'clock at night, you just check it one more time before you're about to go to bed for a peaceful night's sleep and you get a message from your boss who you don't know was just clearing out his inbox because he had time. And there's a message there saying, oh, let's have a chat tomorrow about this. And you can't get to sleep because, you know, you're fretting that he's going to fire you or something. But this happens daily, happens around a whole bunch of things. What can managers or leaders do other than setting up one of these little uh, messages, or including setting up these messages, what can managers or leaders do to promote or to model good digital nutrition with their teams, but still get the job done? Uh, look, email, it could be a podcast in itself, that ping pong back and forth. And I think it's um, Adam Adler who says, you know, email is like the zombie that never dies you, or you kill off the zombie and you think you've cleared your inbox and then the next morning it's risen from the dead, um, you know, and, and definitely working on all those different time zones um, means that it's pinging and ponging all the way around all the time. So, look, what I, what I recommend is, is, first of all, batching emails and only checking at particular times, a couple um, batching is either, well, you can batch when things get sent. So, um, you can be up and setting, you know, as the boss setting the example, whether that's a positive example of, I send messages from my iPad in bed at 11 o'clock. That to me is not good digital hygiene and sets up people to go, Ooh, the boss is working until 11 o'clock. If I ever want to be a boss, then I need to do that too. And I need to be uber responsive by replying at 11 15. That to me says, actually, you're not going to be productive the next day if you haven't switched off from the job that I want you to be doing in business hours. So again, that's a really specific conversation based on the context. Um, and, and even working with our chronobiology, which is some people are, are night owls. Some people do their best work between midnight and 2 a.m. Other people do their best sleeping between, you know, nine o'clock and midnight. So working in with you know, who's in your team, how you're working, and the expectation of when you will get replies, uh, get um, replies to stuff. So part of my, this is a calm inbox, is like, hold tight, I will reply within 24 hours. And trust me, I read and archive everything that's going on here. You know, and, and just being clear expectations of what's going on. You know, I, I don't think anyone ever got a lesson in how to use email well. We just started using email. Most of us worked out that the little paperclip meant how to attach things. Trust me, I'm still working with people who haven't worked that out yet. We don't know what BCC is for, let alone, you know, CC and all of that stuff. So I think we need really clear expectations and guidelines around how that works and then tailoring that for the context that you're working in. So, you know, batching is just like set it up so it doesn't go out at 11 o'clock at night um it looks like you've been up at seven o'clock in the morning or just don't check so you're not actually reading stuff when you are trying to go to sleep you know an email from your boss is not a lullaby in any context unless it's a pay rise in which case you probably can't sleep anyway because you're online buying stuff with the money that yeah. you earn and <laughs> yeah we, we, we talk about this in our in our diaries and our content all the time and i still can't convince my wife to do this just don't sleep with your phone by your bedside. You know, she's, she's fine for now, but it frustrates the hell out of me since I write about this stuff all the time. First, you wake, you know, wake up, first thing, have a look, go to bed. Now, thankfully, 
she doesn't have any particular, doesn't have a boss like that or a job like that or dramas like that. So it's still tolerable. But, um, you know, a lot of people, WhatsApp's another one. You get a WhatsApp message from someone who can't get to sleep and it's that, yeah, the person on the other end, how is it going to make them feel? Yeah. Using do not disturb there, I think, is where you can take responsibility then for saying, well, people can send me stuff whenever they need to send me stuff, but I'm going to put some really clear boundaries into place so that I'm not, that's not coming through to me. So it's building that kind of fortress around you so that, you know, people can send and it'll be there in the morning, but you're not going to interrupt and disrupt and put at risk your sleep because that is a really big one in terms of what's the best productivity tool that we can use. It's actually making sure we get the right quality and quantity of sleep, you know, and and that displacement effect, I guess, is that the more you're doing of something, then the less you're doing of something else, most of the time it's encroaching into our sleep. So many of us are sleep deprived, not because we have toddlers who climb into bed with me like mine did last night and kick and move around, but um, because when we're just not getting to bed on time um like again we we would have 20 years ago when there wasn't just one more episode of the new streaming tv show that you really want to keep up with so you can talk about it around the zoom water cooler the next day yeah and it's not just you know the blue lights it's actually it's the thoughts it's the, it's the thoughts that, yeah. that, that are left with you because if you check your phone one more time you'll have an email from your boss you'll have that loop open until the next morning you'll have a whatsapp message and if they don't subsequently respond you sit there wondering what they're going to say. And I guess part of it is about closing the loop before you go to bed, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, because even, you know, then you have a cheeky check of social media and, oh, yeah, it happens to be that other people have added content there. That feed, and again, the analogy of food here is really kind of funny because it's like this constant sushi train. The feed just keeps going round and round and round. So you absolutely need to be able to, as you say, close the loop or step off the train in order to allow your brain just to process what is there. One of the big things that I talk about, I guess, is that our brains are like a Commodore 64, really old school kind of processing equipment, but the amount of information we're consuming every day is a PhD's worth, so 100,000 words. However, it's not PhD quality. So it's just smashing us with so much sensory input And we don't know the hijack effect of we don't know when we're going to open, you know, whatever social media platform and see sometimes really distressing material. You know, it literally is vicarious trauma because somebody wants to share about Syrian children and you happen to open that just before bed and go to bed like traumatised and really, really you know your brain is switched back on so increasingly it's not about blue light um yes that was an issue for a while most like most companies um have adapted to to a lot of these issues there's you know the orange light kind of night it used to be the main one was called flux but you know it's all built into the phones it's built into the the laptops you can set this up so after nine o'clock everything's kind of seems a bit orangey so we need to start using those tools if we're serious about these things can you talk us through a few of our, a few other interventions or modifications that you've done to your own digital life? You know, we've talked about batch checking of emails and notifications. Basically, I'll check emails at set points in the day or I'll check my messages at certain points a day and I'll give myself half an hour to go nuts and text till my heart's content. But then I'll go back to doing something else. We've talked about setting boundaries. 
Um, we've talked about turning off your notifications, which is especially auditory ones. So, you know, the ping, you know, we can check the phone when we want to rather than when it wants to tell us something. And increasingly these days, notifications are ads and updates and cookie updates and, you know, they're annoying. What other boundaries or practical steps have you taken in your own life that might seem obvious to you now, but which have had an impact for you? I sent all, I did a big clean up with my newsletters and I sent them all to a secondary email address so that I physically have to log into there. And that's another step, therefore another nudge to like, what are you doing? What are you looking for? So that I wasn't part of like my inbox because I'm a bit of a zero inboxy get rid of stuff. So that if I really wanted to look at those newsletters and, you know, we, we sign up to stuff that we don't really plan on reading wholeheartedly. So I send a lot of stuff to there so I don't get it polluting, I guess, my, my inbox. I also have a log out of my emails. So it's, I think it's really easy to stay logged in and never turn your computer off. But if you log out, if you go to have that cheeky check in between, you have to log back in. Now, for most people by now, if you're not using a password manager, you should, but most people then are like, oh, what's the password? I've got to remember that. And it becomes a nudge again to say, oh, I've got to put a password in. Therefore, it gives you an opportunity to go, oh, what were you doing anyway? Was this really the time that you needed to be doing things? Put it on a list. So what I do in those times, and I try and have offline times, is have a physical piece of paper where I will write down what I wanted the internet for. So imagine that the internet was, again, like dial-up. You had to dial into the internet and get a hold of it. You only did that like a couple of times a day and you did everything really, really quickly because the internet was expensive. So, again, lessons from 2002 when we had that. Really value the time that you spend there. So I write lists and it's really interesting if you go away from that list and you come back and you go, what? I wanted to look up that recipe. I could go to a book. That's full of recipes. So it just helps you kind of really, it's like doing an audit, like you would do like an audit of what you ate. What's an audit of what I actually pretended I needed the internet for? So there's some some kind of things that, that I do is just like log out, make it harder for myself. Don't have tons of emails that you think, oh, I can just have a little snack on that thing. I also basically have no social media on my phone. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Instagram um, that comes on and then goes off. Most of my Instagram I, I schedule from an app that allows me just to do, again, batching everything. I just get a whole bunch of memes, put them in, write some captions when I feel like and, and send it off. So I'm not kind of jumping on to like look at what's going on in that space. I mostly do everything from my laptop, mostly even messages. So even texting, unless I'm saying five minutes late or around the corner or that functional stuff, the utility bit. I don't send big long texts from my phone. I sit down and I type where it's much faster and I can express myself better into those spaces. So my laptop is kind of the funnel for all of the activities that I do. Um, and then I just use my phone for little bits and pieces and, and as little as possible. Yep. This is great tips. Adding on to that one, I've, I've cleared my phone home screen. So it's just got the picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. And it's one more swipe it gives me that extra half a second to think, what am I doing? And then I've got three pages of apps ordered by their functionality and relevance. Yeah? No one goes onto Google Maps and just browses for fun. Functional ones like that are on page one. You know, the, the, the more addictive ones are on page three and the, you know, the actual ones you use are on page two. 
So the, the next little nudge there that you can do is put all the inverted commas addictive ones into a folder and then call that folder something that is relevant to you. So mine says or has said at different points, are you writing your thesis? Because if you're not writing your thesis, what are you doing here? It can be um, choose your time wisely. Again, whatever works for you to go, oh, there's my reminder. Here's my choice point. Where do I want to go? Action, or, you know, into traction or distraction. That's a really good one. I, I, I like that one. Make a folder. One more step. And it's about deliberately creating some friction there. One thing that I read recently, which I've started doing, I was never into Instagram. We have an Instagram page for the business, but I've never you know, been addicted to it myself, so to speak. Facebook early days, like everyone was, you know, I've done well to wean myself off these. But I've noticed recently, as I'm spending more time on LinkedIn, that that's becoming <laughs> my new my new one. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff on there, but there's all just like a lot of social platforms, there's a lot of self-serving rubbish. And so what I've done now, instead of going straight to the LinkedIn homepage, which gives you the feed, and there's something about that analogy of being fed, fed stuff. Yeah. I just don't know. It doesn't appeal to me because I like to choose what I eat. I want to eat what I want rather than have someone feed it to me. That that analogy is just too close to home. So I actually go straight to the messaging. So I actually make my the most common shortcut or you know, link or whatever it is. It's linkedin.com slash messaging. And it takes me straight to my inbox, which is where all the important stuff is. Rather than going straight to the LinkedIn homepage, which is where I'll be distracted by the most relevant, you know, and it is good stuff oftentimes. The top thing is something that will make you go, oh, better read that, but I don't want that. That's a great one, yeah, absolutely. And and knowing, like, I, I sometimes prepare myself. I go, okay, I'm going to check something. I'm going to check, let's say, LinkedIn, and I need to be prepared to see that my competitor or, you know, someone else is doing this amazing thing. And rather than go, oh, no, I'm not doing that. I didn't pivot fast enough to suddenly in the COVID offer my, you know, workshops via AI or something like next level, I, I have to go, I need to be like kind and really into what other people are doing rather than going into a compare and despair mentality. And, and that for me is why I have to be really careful of social media because I'm like constantly looking at what other people are doing and getting excited, but then going, oh, I should be doing that too. Compare so, and despair. Yeah. Compare and despair. We, we could, uh, we really should do this again because um, there's so much <laughs> to talk about. I mean, there's lots of little bits and pieces that you can do. A lot of them are just cognitive. A lot of them are little tricks of the mind rather than hacks of behavior. And, you know, behavior and cognitions are, are relatively um, closely aligned. Some things I encourage families to do is create a bit of a digital foyer. So everything, all of the devices sort of live in, in a foyer or an area that if you want to use them, you have to go and use them in that space. So again, retro, thinking about that old um, phone connected to the wall and the very long string, um, taking away that mobile nature of it. You want it, you can go and use it. You just have to get up and go and use it in a particular place. And again, that walking to there helps you go, oh, what was I doing? So it's it's interesting that a lot of these things are, actually, are taking the utility of the mobileness of a phone away by saying, imagine it was stuck to the wall. Diversifying the digital diet, I guess, is a big one for families where, where kids do get stuck on some of those really big name games and knowing that there is a whole 
alternative and indie um, industry of games that are pro-social, have beautiful narratives, have much more lovely design and people who absolutely love games making them in places like Melbourne um, where in Australia, you know, we still don't fund games as as a screen. We film lots of different screens, um, fund lots of different screens, but we actually pulled the pin on the only games funding that we had in this country. Yet most of what, you know, one of the biggest activities that people are going to do on a screen this year is, is to play games. So find better, more diverse, nutritious games. I've got a whole TEDx talk about that that you can check out. Yeah. The idea that... I mean, getting kids not to eat McDonald's is hard work at the best of times. But the idea that Fortnite is McDonald's, but there are equally tasty, you know, not apples, but there are equally tasty things that if you just sort them out consciously or mindfully could give you the same entertainment bang, but a whole lot of other benefits for your buck Mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. And and rethinking that for every McDonald's burger, there is a little local burger joint that creates the same kind of product without all the additives. And it's the additives that go into some things like Fortnite that add and amp up kids' behaviour that is where I guess a lot of people see it as being problematic. I see it as there's some good things about it. It's a 20-minute game. It's not a persistent world where, like, you know, some Minecraft mods where if I leave my house that I've been spending lots of time building, somebody might burn it down. There's there's some good and not so good things about that and it's understanding how to use that, understanding how to have the one Macca's meal a, a week or a fortnight or a month, whatever works for your family, as opposed to that being your daily breakfast that you kick off your thinking about the world with. So I grew up in the 80s where on Saturday morning after my swimming training, my mum would take me to McDonald's, right? So it's all in the context of I was an elite swimmer at that stage. Eating a bit of Macca's from a calorie point of view was, you know, not a big deal. It's, it's really then when we think about like the, the corporations that we're giving into and, and buying from and the, what we're setting up in terms of our values, do we value that or do we want to support the local burger joint? Yep. So last thing before we finish up, parents listening to this, they've just come back from their walk, they've listened to their podcast and they've come in and their son or daughter is sitting there as they were an hour ago, sitting, staring at the iPad. Rather than saying, get off your iPad, you've been doing that all day and you know making these judgments, what should be the first thing that goes through a parent's mind? as they're watching this, as, as they're thinking about what to say or do to change behaviour or to, to nudge behaviour in a certain way, what should they think or do? They should be curious about what can hold a young person's attention and bring that curiosity and, and a softness to the way that they investigate that. So rather than saying, get off your device, what are you doing, you haven't been doing anything, say, wow, you know, what's been happening online? Who, what? what 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 did you win like how are you feeling what's been what what interactions might have happened in that game what did you do well in that game um what's going on with your friends like a lot of kids at the moment are just chatting like it's a lot of messaging they might be chatting around you know a particular meme or a particular thing and that was kind of like me bringing a dolly magazine to the playground in year nine um we all crowded around that one thing and then talked about it it happens to be that we now all have our own personal magazines within you know our our devices so 
rather than coming at it from you're doing nothing and you're wasting time, tell me about your choices. Tell me about what's happening in that space. And again, you've got to be careful, I guess, because teens are like, yeah, piss off, mama. <laughs> it's my world. I'm not going to share that with you. You've got to, you kind of can't out of nowhere be like, hey, I, I heard that, you know, somebody say I should be playing more games with you. Let's be best friends in Fortnite. They're going to die a million deaths. It was like when my mum wanted to come to home bake with me and, and go to the front of the mosh pits. Like, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. So you've got to kind of find a way to build that communication and build that connection so that then that curiosity is like your go-to rather than the nagging and the freak out, which is, you know, I understand why parents do that because they just don't have a sense of what's happening in that space. You mentioned before you had a TEDx talk. How can people learn more about your work, what you write, think and talk about? And what's the best place for them to learn about that? So digitalnutrition.com.au is my website and from there you can find my social media channels. I guess um, uh, Twitter is where I put a lot of stuff in terms of what I'm reading and thinking in a in a short term, like low GI kind of way. And then for the, the longer burns, um, I've got a blog. You'll find a lot of my media and my TEDx um, on my website. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for coming on. As you know, we we reference digital nutrition in our latest diary. So there's over 15,000 people across Australia who will be learning about that. I think it was September or October of this year we, we talk about that. So unless they've read ahead, they may not have come to it just yet. But uh, from what I've gleaned from our supporters, they like the idea of it and they like the nuance of it rather than just screen is bad, do less of this. It feels really restrictive and... You, know, you feel like a bit of a Luddite, um, mm. common sense. You can sort of get the best of both worlds. That's what we want. So Absolutely. thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Resilience Agenda Radio, the mental fitness podcast with me, Hadley Fisher. If you enjoyed today's episode, we invite you to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform so you'll never miss an update. If you'd like to know more about Resilience Agenda or mental fitness, jump on over to www.resilientagenda.com. There, you can learn more about our other guests and pick up the show notes from today's episode. You'll learn more about our story, the Mental Fitness Toolkit, and discover our best-selling mental fitness diaries, jam-packed with dozens of strategies and ideas for how you can improve your mental fitness each and every day of the year. Over 25,000 people every year use our diaries to plan time for their own mental fitness or as unique and meaningful gifts for family, friends and colleagues. That's it for today. We look forward to you joining us next time.